0: So welcome to episode one, the first episode of a new podcast called Within the Pages. In this podcast I am picking up some of the books which I have on my shelf which I haven't read and also hopefully getting some new books either inspired by suggestions or persons or, persons or people which I listen to and talk to. So each episode I will be picking a new book and reading a chapter or a passage from that book. The aim of the podcast is to make myself accountable or a little bit more accountable for reading. So if I uh, aim to read a book a week, then we should be able to get 50 or 52 books out within the year. And obviously, because I will be putting the content out as a podcast, then I will be held accountable if I don't get them out. So you are more than welcome to shout at me and send me messages saying, hey, where's the next book? The first book is one that I was gifted at uh, Christmas time. It was really, really cool. It was a book which I've been meaning to get for quite a while. Um and I was gifted it on Christmas Day, which was fantastic. I can't even couldn't even remember mentioning that I wanted it, so it was even more of a surprise. It's very, very cool. It is um open by Andre Agassi, it's the autobiography. And within the pages he talks about his Dislike and the pretty much hatred of tennis all the way through and some of the challenges, or lots of the challenges which he's had to work through to overcome it. Um, it's still staggering how he still manages to play tennis um, and he, he kind of states throughout it that it's the one thing that he was very good at um, despite not liking it. But what else could he do because he's put so much time into it he, he wasn't able to do anything else. So it's a very, very cool book and... The passage that we're going to read is towards the uh, towards the end of the book, and to set the scene a little bit, he has just split up with his wife uh, Brooke Shields, and uh, he hasn't won the French Open yet. And he sets a challenge, or he is set a challenge by you know, by his coach to meet Steffi Graf. So he goes through, uh, completely changes his world. We'll, we'll pick it up from here. So without further ado, let's head into the book. This is Open by Andre Agassi. It's an awesome book. I urge you to go and find a copy and have a read. Until then, I hope you enjoy listening to episode one of Within the Pages. Look forward to reading more over the coming weeks. Thanks, guys. (laughs) I head back to Vegas. Brad phones. Indian Wells is coming up, he says. I tell Brad that I'm going through some stuff right now, but I can't tell him what. And Indian Wells is out of the question. I have to get well, get right, which means spending a lot of time with Gil. Every night we buy a sack of hamburgers and drive around the city. I'm breaking training, big time, but Gil sees again that I need comfort food. He also sees that he might lose a finger if he tries to take the hamburger away from me. We drive into the mountains, up and down the strip, listening to Gil's special CD. He calls it Bellycramps. Gill's Gil's philosophy, in all things, is to seek the pain, woo the pain, recognise that pain is life. If you're heartbroken, Gil says, don't hide from it, wallow in it. We hurt, he says, so let's hurt. Bellycramps is his medley of the most painful love songs ever written. We will listen to them over and over until we know the lyrics by heart. After a song has played... Gil will speak the lyrics. For my money, his speaking is better than anyone's singing. He puts all recording artists to shame. I'd rather hear Gil talk a song than Sinatra croon it. With each passing year, Gil's voice grows deeper, richer and softer. And when he speaks, the chorus of a torch song, he sounds as if he's channelling Moses and Elvis. He deserves a Grammy for his rendition of Barry Manilow's Please Don't Be Scared feeling pains a hard way to know you're still alive. But his take on Roy Clark's version of We Can't Build a Fire in the rain knocks me out every time. One particular line resonates with us both. Just going through the motions and pretending we have something left to gain. When I'm not with Gil, I'm locked in my new house, the one I bought with Brooke for those infrequent occasions when we came home to Vegas. Now I think of it as bachelor pad number two. I like the house, It's more my style than French country place where she and I lived in Pacific Palisades. And it doesn't have a fireplace. I can't think without a fireplace. I must have fire. So I hire a guy to build one. While it's under construction, the house is a disaster area. Huge plastic sheets hang from the walls. Tarps cover the furniture. A thick coat of dust lies everywhere. One morning, staring into the unfinished fireplace, I think about Mandela. I think about the promises I've made to myself and others. I reach for the phone and I dial Brad. Come to Vegas. I'm ready to play. He says he's on his way. Unbelievable. He could dump me. No one would blame him. But instead he drops everything the moment I call. I love the guy. Now, while he's on his way, I worry that he won't be comfortable because of all the construction. Then I smile. I have two leather club chairs sat in front of a large TV screen and a wet bar stocked with Bud Ice. All Brad's basic needs will be met. Five hours later, he comes through the door, flops into one of the club chairs, opens a beer and instantly looks as if he's nestled in his mother's arms. I join him in a beer. Six o'clock rolls around. We switch to frozen margaritas. At eight o'clock, we're still in the club chairs. Brad flipping channels, looking for sports highlights. I say, Listen, Brad, I need to tell you something. It's something I should have told you a while ago. He's staring at the TV. I'm staring into the unfinished fireplace, imagining flames. You see that game the other night, he asks. No one is beating Duke this year. Brad, this is important. Something you need to know. Brooke and I? Well, we're done. We're not going to make it. He turns. He looks me dead in the eye. Then he puts his eyebrows on his knees and hangs his head. I had no idea he'd take it this hard. He stays this way for a full three seconds. And finally, he looks up and gives me a big, toothy smile. He says... It's going to be a great year. What? We're going to have a great year. But this is the best thing that's ever happened to your tennis. I'm miserable. What are you talking about? Miserable? Then you're looking at this all wrong. You don't have kids. You're free as a bird. If you had kids, OK, there would be real problems. But this way, you get off scot-free. I guess. You've got the world by the balls. You're solo, rid of all the drama. He looks deranged. He looks delirious. He tells me we have Key Biscayne coming up, then clay season, then good things. About to happen. This burden is off you now, he says. Instead of lying around Vegas feeling your pain, let's put some pain on your opponents. You know what? You're right. That calls for another batch of margaritas. At nine o'clock, I say, we should think about food. But Brad is peacefully, contentedly licking salt from the rim of his glass, and he's found tennis on the television. A night match in Indian Wells. Steffi Graf versus Serena Williams. He wheels and gives me his toothy smile again. That's your play right there, he points to the TV. He says, Steffi Graf, that's who you should be with. Yeah, right. She wants no part of me. I've told Brad the stories. The 1991 French Open, the 1992 Wimbledon Ball. I've tried and tried, no dice. Steffi Graf is like the French Open. I just can't get across that particular finish line. That's all in the past, Brad says. Besides, your approach back then was so un-Andre. Asking once and backing off, strictly amateur. Since when do you let other people run your game? Since when do you take no for an answer? I nod. Maybe. You just need a look, Brad says. A crack of light, a window, an opening. The next tournament where Steffi and I are both scheduled to play is Key game. Brad tells me to relax and he'll get me close. You know Steffi's coach, Heinz Guntart. You'll talk to Hines about setting up a practice session. The moment we arrive in Key Biscayne, Brad phones Hines, who's surprised by the proposition. He says no. He says Steffi would never agree to break her regular preparation schedule for a practice session with a stranger. She's too regimented. Also, she's shy. She'd be highly uncomfortable. But Brad is persistent, and Hines must have some trace of romantic in him. He suggests Brad and I book the court for right after Steffi's practice session, then arrive early. Hines will then casually suggest that Steffi hit a few balls with me. It's all set, Brad says. High noon. You, me, Steffi, Hines. Let's get this party started. First things first. I phone JP and tell him to get his ass to Florida. Pronto. I need advice. I need a sounding board. I need a wingman. Then I hit the court and practice for my practice session. On the appointed day, Brad and I get to the court 45 minutes early. I've never been so breathless. I've played seven times in a final of a Grand Slam and I've never felt like this. We find Hines and Steffi deeply absorbed in their practice session. We stand off to the side, watching. After a few minutes, Hines calls Steffi to the net and says something to her. He points to us. She looks. I smile. She doesn't. She says a few words to Hines and Hines says a few words. And then she shakes her head. But when she jogs back to the baseline, Hines waves me onto the court. I tie my shoes, quickly. I pull my racket out of my bag and walk onto the court, then impulsively whip off my shirt. It's shameless, I realise, but I'm desperate. Steffi looks and does a barely detectable double take. Thank you, Gil. We start to hit. She's flawless, of course, and I'm struggling to get the ball over the net. The net is your biggest enemy. Relax, I tell myself. Stop thinking. Come on, Andre, it's only a practice session. But I can't help myself. I've never seen a woman so beautiful. Standing still, she's a goddess in motion. She's poetry. I'm a suitor, but also a fan. I've wondered for so long what Steffi Graf's forehand feels like. I've watched her on TV and at tournaments, and I've wondered how that ball feels when it comes flying off her racket. A ball feels different off every player's racket. There are minute but concrete subtleties of force and spin. Now, hitting with her, I feel her subtleties. It's like touching her, though we're 40 feet apart. Every forehand is foreplay. She hits a series of backhands, carving up the court with her famous slice. I need to impress her with the ability to take that slice and do whatever I want with it. But it's harder than I thought. I miss one. I yell to her, You're not going to get away with that. She says nothing. She hits another slice. I sit down on my backhand and hit the ball as hard as I can. She nets the return. I yell, that shot pays a lot of bills for me. Again, nothing. She merely hits the next one deeper and slicier. Generally, during my practice sessions, Brad likes to keep busy. He chases balls, offers pointers, runs his mouth. But not this time. He's sitting in the umpire chair, his eyes peeled, a lifeguard on a shark-infested beach. Whenever I look in his direction, he mutters one word, beautiful. Around the edges of the court, people are beginning to gather, to gawk. A few photographers snap photos. I wonder why. Is it the rarity of a male and female player practising? Or is it that I'm catatonic and missing every third ball? From a distance, it looks like Steffi is giving a lesson to a shirtless grinning mute. After we hit for an hour and ten minutes, she waves and comes to the net. Thank you very much, she says. I trot to the net and say the pleasure was all mine. I manage to act nonchalant until she starts to use the net post to stretch out her legs. All the blood rushes to my head. I need to do something physical or I might lose consciousness. I've never stretched before, but now seems like a good enough time to start. I put a leg on the net post and pretend my back is flexible. We stretch, talk about the tour, complain about the travel, compare notes on different cities we've enjoyed. And then I ask, what's your favourite city? When tennis is over, where do you imagine living? Oh, it's a tie, I think. Between New York and San Francisco. I think, have you ever thought of living in Vegas? But I say, my two favourites also. She smiles. Well, she says, thanks again. Anytime. We do the European double cheek kiss. Brad and I take the ferry back to Fisher Island where JP is waiting. The three of us spend the rest of the night talking about Steffi as if she's an opponent which she is. Brad treats her like Rafter or Pete. She has strength, she has weaknesses. He breaks down her game, coaches me up. Now and then JP phones Joni, puts her on speaker and we try to get to the female point of view. The conversation continues over the next few days. At dinner, in the steam room, at the hotel bar, the three of us talk about nothing but Steffi. We're plotting, using military jargon like Recon and Intel. I feel as if we're planning a land and sea invasion of Germany. I say, she seemed kind of cool to me. Brad says, she has no idea you split from your missus. It hasn't been in the papers yet. Nobody knows. You need to let her know your status and tell her how you feel about her. I'll send her flowers. Yes, JP says, flowers are good. But you can't send them under your name. It might get leaked to the press. We'll have Joni send them, with your name on the card. Good thinking. Joni goes to the shop on South Beach and, under my directive, buys every rose in the place. She essentially orders a rose garden transplanted into Steffi's room. On the card, I thank Steffi for the practice session and invite her to dinner. Then I sit back and wait for the call. There is no call. All day. All the next day. No matter how much I stare at it and shout at it, the phone refuses to ring. I pace, pick my cuticles until they bleed. Brad comes into my room and worries that he might need to give me a sedative. I shout, this is bullshit. OK, she's not interested, I get it, but how about a thank you? If she doesn't call by tonight, I swear I'm calling her. We move to the patio. Brad looks off and says, "Uh uh-oh, what? JP says, I think I see your flowers. They point to the patio of a room across the way. Steffi's room, obviously, because there on the patio table are a giant bouquet of long-stemmed red roses. Not sure that's a good sign, JP says. No, Brett says. NG, not good. We decide that I'll wait for Steffi to win her first match, a foregone conclusion, and when she does, I'll phone. JP preps me for the call. He plays the role of Steffi. We rehearse every scenario. He throws me every line she might possibly utter. Steffi beats her hapless first-round opponent in 42 minutes. I've tipped the ferry captains to phone me the moment they see her step on the ferry. Fifty minutes after the match, I get a call. She's aboard. I give her fifty minutes to reach the island, ten minutes to go from the dock to the hotel, and then I phone the operator and ask for her room. I know her room number because I can still see my damn flowers sitting dejectedly on the patio table. She picks up the phone on the second ring. Hi, it's Andre. Oh, I just wanted to call and make sure you got my flowers. I did. Oh. Silence. She says, I don't want any misunderstandings between us. My boyfriend is here. I see. Well, okay, I understand. Silence. Good luck with the tournament. Thank you, you too. Yawning canyon of silence. Well, goodbye. Bye. I fall on the couch and stare at the floor. I have one question for you, JP says. What could she possibly have said that would put that look on your face? What scenario did we not rehearse? Her boyfriend is here. Oh. Then I smile. I take a page from Brad's positive thinking playbook. Maybe she's sending me a message. Obviously her boyfriend was sitting right there. So? So she couldn't talk. And rather than say, I have a boyfriend, case closed, leave me alone, she said, my boyfriend is here. So? I think she's saying there's a chance. JP says he'll fix me a drink. The tournament provides a small measure of distraction. Sadly, the distraction only lasts a few hours. In the first round, against Dominic Hurabati from Slovakia. I can only think of Steffi and her boyfriend enjoying or awkwardly ignoring my roses. Hurabati whoops me in three sets. I'm out of the tournament. I should leave Fisher Island, but I stick around, sitting on the beach, plotting with JP and Brad. Steffi's boyfriend probably showed up unexpectedly. Brad says, plus she still doesn't know you're divorced. She still thinks you're married to Brooke. Give it time. Let the news come out. then make your move. You're right, you're right. Brad mentions Hong Kong in light of my performance against Harabati. I clearly need another tournament before we head into the clay season. Let's go to Hong Kong. he says. Let's not sit around here any more thinking and talking about Steffi. Next thing I know, I'm settling into a seat on an aeroplane bound for China. I look at the screen at the head of the cabin. Estimated flight time, 15 hours, 37 minutes. I look at Brad. 15 hours and 37 minutes? To obsess about Steffi? I don't think so. I unbuckle my seatbelt and stand. Where are you going? I'm getting off this plane. Don't be ridiculous. Sit down. Relax. We're here. We're all packed. Let's go play. I ease back into my seat. Order two Belvederes, swallow a sleeping pill, and after what feels like a month, I'm on the other side of the earth. I'm in a car being whisked along the Hong Kong highway, looking up at the soaring International Finance Centre. I phone Perry. When is the news of my divorce going to break? The lawyers are hashing out the details, he says. Meanwhile, you and Brooke need to work on the statement. We fax drafts back and forth. Her team, my team, lawyers and publicists have had a go at it. Brooke adds a word, I delete a word. Faxes and more faxes. What began with faxes ends with faxes. The statement is about to be released, Perry says. It should be in the papers any day now. Brad and I run down to the lobby every morning, buy up all the newspapers, then sit over breakfast and scan every page looking for the headline. For the first time in my memory, I can't wait for the newspapers to report about my private life. Each day I say a prayer. Let this be the day that Steffi learns I'm free. Day after day, it's not there. It's like waiting for Steffi's call. If only I had hair so I could pull it out. Finally, the cover of People carries a photo of Brooke and me. The headline reads, Suddenly Split. It's April 26th, 1999, three days before my 29th birthday, almost exactly two years after our wedding. Reborn, renewed, I win Hong Kong. But on the flight home, I can't lift my arm. I rush from the airport to Gil's house. He examines the shoulder, grimaces. He doesn't like the look of it. We need to shut everything down and skip the entire clay season. No, 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 Brad says. We have to be in Rome for the Italian Open. Please, i never win that thing. Let's forget it. No, Brad says. Let's go to Rome, see how the shoulder goes. You didn't want to go to Hong Kong, right? But you won, right? I see a trend developing. I let him drag me onto a plane, and in Rome I lose in the third round to Rafter, whom i just beat in Indian Wells. Now I really want to shut it down, but Brad talks me into going to play the World Team Cup in Germany. I don't have the strength to argue with him. The weather in Germany is cold, dreary, meaning the ball plays very heavy. I look at Brad with murder in my eye. I can't believe he's dragged me down to Dusseldorf with a sore shoulder. In the middle of the first set, down 3-4, I can't take another swing. I quit. That's it. We're going home, I tell Brad. I have to get my shoulder right, and I have to figure out this thing with Steffi. As we board the flight from Frankfurt to San Francisco, I'm not speaking to Brad. I'm mad as hell. We have 12 hours ahead of us, side by side, and I tell him, here's how it's going to be, Brad. I haven't slept all night because of the shoulder. I'm going to swallow two sleeping pills right now, and I'm not going to listen to you for the next 12 hours, and it's going to be heaven. You hear me? And when we land, the first thing I want to do is pull me out of the French Open. He leans into me and badges me for two hours. You're not going back to Vegas. You're not pulling out. You're coming with me to my house in San Francisco. I've got the guest cottage set up with plenty of firewood the way you like it, and then you and I are flying back to Paris, and you're going to play. It's the only slam you don't have, and you've always wanted it, and you can't win it if you don't play. French Open? Please, you must be kidding. That ship has sailed. How do you know? Who's to say this isn't your year? Trust me, in no sense is 1999 my year. Look, you were just starting to show glimpses of the player you used to be. I saw something in you I hadn't seen in years. We have to stay after that. I see right through him. It's not that he thinks the French Open is remotely winnable. If I pull out of the French Open, it will be easier to pull out of Wimbledon. And there goes the whole year. Goodbye, come back, hello, retirement. Landing in San Francisco, I'm once again too tired to argue. I slide into Brad's car and he drives me to his place and puts me up in the cottage. I sleep for 12 hours. When I wake, a chiropractor is there, ready to treat me. It's not going to work, I say. It is going to work, Brad says. I get treatments twice a day. The rest of the time, I watch the fog and stoke the fire. By Friday, I do feel a little bit better. Brad smiles. We hit balls on his backyard court. 20 minutes, then I hit a few serves. Call Gilly, I say. Let's go to Paris. So that is the first... Passage for the Within the Pages podcast, that's episode one. This is from the book Open by Andre Agassi. After that, he then goes on to uh, win the French Open. That is the year he wins the French Open for the first time. He beats Medvedev in the final. And obviously, he also then goes on to marry Stephanie Graf, or Steffi Graf, And uh, they have two children now. But yes, I urge you to get the book. I hope you enjoyed listening to the passage from, uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to one of my favourite chapters from the book, yeah. I'm a, a bit of a hopeless romantic really, so uh, it's rather cool, I enjoyed reading it, I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did. So I, I hope you enjoyed listening to one of my favourite chapters in the book, I urge you to head out and grab a copy, I'm sure you can get them in pretty much any bookshop or uh, online at Amazon anything like that. I I was lucky enough to get this one for Christmas, as I said. So until the next episode, where I will be reading through another passage from a book which I'm reading, if you have any suggestions for books which you think I might like or would like to recommend, then by all means drop me a message and I will have a look.